Welcome to Pipeline Conversations, a machine learning podcast by ZenML. This week, I spoke with Robin Cole, a senior data scientist at Satellite View, a company that's about to launch a thermal imaging satellite into space in order to, to provide new ways of seeing the Earth from above. Robin generously took the time to discuss his day-to-day work involving satellite data, the stack they work with at Satellite View, as well as some of the difficulties that come up in the domain. We also discuss his extremely popular satellite image deep learning GitHub repo that presents resources for those working with or seeking to learn about this kind of data. Everything mentioned in the show will be listed in show notes as usual. And without further ado, here's the conversation. I've got a quite an interesting history. So my background is actually in physics. I did undergraduate and postgraduate studying physics and specialized in optical physics and spent quite a bit of time as a researcher, both in academia and then in industry. And that was really a love of playing with you know, the laws of physics and hardware, essentially. I, I uh, remember being really into the laser labs that we had as undergraduates and thinking that's a really cool area of physics. You know, you can see what you're working with. I want to work in that. Uh, and after academia, I, I moved to industry, and that was really good fun. That was uh, basically building experimental systems, and there, there started to be a bit of coding involved in that. And actually, I, I quite enjoyed the buzz of like writing code and seeing machines move around and lasers blink on and off and all that kind of thing. Uh, and that sort of led me down this path from sort of pure science towards more software and then increasingly also the analytics side. Uh, I've had a real fascination with the latest uh developments around artificial intelligence it kind of sparks all that sort of childhood fantasies around sort of artificial machines that you could talk to and i'm fortunate enough to to do that now for my day job uh so currently i'm working as a senior data scientist at a startup called satellite view and we have uh, a satellite launching in the first half of 2023 which has unique uh capabilities it's actually uh, imaging in the thermal which is a part of the the spectrum which uh, no other satellites are currently imaging in or at least not commercial satellites there's probably spy satellites that do it but we'll be the first people doing it in the commercial uh, area and that is a really exciting uh, position to be in um, startups uh, there's a lot a lot going on but you get your foot in the door nice and early so for me part of the attraction was to be literally you know one of the first people through the door being able to choose you know the landscape of uh what, what tools we use, you know, how we were going to build things uh, and, you know, set set uh, the stage for everything that comes after that. So it's been a really exciting uh, place to be. Mm-hmm. And what does the what does the day-to-day work of uh, someone in your position look like? What, what, what does that mean? Because, you know, data, lots of, data scientists can mean lots of different things. That's right. I think data scientist is one of those job titles that probably can describe a very broad range of sort of activities you know you you could be in like e-commerce and looking at like i don't know customer data or you could be like myself and be basically doing working with images all the time so to answer your question my my job at the moment is mostly uh, r d around actually processing of our images which have unique qualities and potentially unique applications Uh, and for the most part we're we're scoping out the applications for that imagery we're doing uh, a series of short proof of concept uh, research uh, sort of cycles to you know sort of identify promising applications for the imagery, demonstrate that we can extract 
whichever signal it is that we need uh, to prove that. And then coming up with sort of uh, pitch decks to to demonstrate to potential clients the value of, of that application. Yeah, I'm just, I guess I'm wondering to myself, like how you... Um... If you say this, this is like the, the the first time it's been deployed in this sense, like uh, or it will be deployed next year. Like, how do you develop the applications like before you have the data somewhat? But I guess you can do experiments with 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 the that's the, right the sensors yeah. on the ground. There are some precedents for what we're doing. So there's already uh, drone surveys and aerial surveys that do sort of some of the similar things that we're looking at doing. And actually, currently we're capturing imagery. Uh, on a plane, it's, it's it's flying both in Europe and North America with a, what's called an engineering model of the camera. So this is sort of, the, sort of a replica of what's going to be on the satellite and we're capturing imagery already. So we're already capturing some data okay. right. and it's really as simple as looking at the data, seeing, okay, that's, that looks like a really interesting phenomena that we're seeing there that potentially has commercial applications to such and such a, a sector. Let's Let's speak with the sales sales team they have their contacts and they can speak to potential customers for that for that data and we have a bit of a feedback loop obviously where uh, we we try and refine you know a potential product around or solution around what we can see and uh, i mean obviously with, within the the the, the the limits of 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 what you're you're comfortable with with saying but like what are the kind of areas that this new sensor opens up um yeah so uh, one of the main areas we're focusing on is the built environment. So you're probably aware that uh, residential property, commercial property, it uses a lot, a lot of energy just to, to keep it warm in the winter and even in the summer to cool it. Uh, and this is you know, a very topical problem uh, around uh, sustainability and uh, sort of future economic uh, and energy planning. So one of the areas we're looking at is in particular sort of studying uh, the built environment to identify, say, inefficient buildings, you know, buildings that are basically leaking heat and can, you know, we can be identified for uh, modernization or change of purpose or upgrade. Um, so that's one of the key applications. Uh, there's also uh, applications around just economic insights. People just want to know, are places busy? You know, there's a, a lockdown due to COVID, for example, how many factories have, have ceased uh, production? Uh, and there's lots of uh, value in just that that kind of economic insight that can be gained. Yeah, it's been really interesting to to see. I mean, I obviously only follow the the, the kind of the very uh, yeah um, the, the big headlines which come come out and so on. But you know, recently there's been a lot lot being done on methane emis uh, emissions. I think from from satellite data and and mm -hmm. so on. And yeah, it seems like that's only going to increase. Absolutely. I mean. The unique capability of satellites is they can go anywhere. You know, you, you can't fly a plane over some parts of the world and see are they are they uh, emitting you know toxics fumes, but you can you can fly a satellite anywhere. So I think uh, we just started to see uh, those capabilities come online, and particularly in the last couple of years, there's been a lot of innovation happening, and lots of it is you know funded by venture capital. Uh, in particular, the two things have happened: the cost of launches has come down dramatically. So SpaceX have you know taking the cost of launch down and that opens up new possibilities. And so, uh, and on the other hand, the um, the hardware has got cheaper. So 
for example, just to assemble a satellite and you know put a, a state-of-the-art camera on there is much cheaper than it would have been, say, a decade ago. And this allows both investors and entrepreneurs to, to take uh, more risks and more gambles and try out different kinds of technology. So something like the methane scanning satellite, it needs to be commercially viable, of course, and you know costs come down and you know applications uh, become more obvious and suddenly those become viable commercial activities. So to take a step step back, and I don't know how far back a step we want we want to take, but just in terms of like the the domain of data derived from satellites, let's say, like what is this domain in terms of of uh, how we deal with it in terms of computer vision and, and and deep learning and so on? Like what what are the problems you have to think about? Like what what um, yeah, where are the kind of the key uh, yeah the the key areas in, 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 in this and what does it mean to, to work on this data? Sure. So, I mean, satellites have been capturing images of the Earth since the 1960s and obviously the quality has improved over time and the, the volumes of data have uh, grown significantly. Uh, historically, uh, much of that data was analysed by people, of course, you know, literally rooms full of people poring over the latest imagery to identify what's going on in Cuba or, you know, can we, you know, manually map out changes to the Earth? Uh, and obviously, that's a costly activity, something that is not particularly fast and uh, doesn't scale particularly well, of course. So, the biggest developments, as far as I can see, in the last couple of years have been both access to data. So, we started to see places like AWS and Google actually host very large data sets and make them publicly available and also uh, the availability of tools to process that data at scale. So like I mentioned, if you wanted to do, say, detecting of a new road in a particular part of the world, well, 20 years ago, that would have been somebody who had to physically look at the image and draw it out, whereas now we obviously have models that can uh, detect those changes and automatically uh, update maps on the basis of that. So there's a couple of big factors uh, that have contributed to it. Mm -hmm. And what are for, for people working in it in terms of your your day to day? Like, what are the the things that you uh, you struggle with? Is it the the large volume of data? Is it um, the ways? Is it the fact that you need to bring data back back and forth between where you're storing it in order to pass it through a training process? Or yeah, what are the kind of the problems there? Yeah, just to address maybe the practical side of it. So even only about five years ago, I was working at a satellite company. And even then, the data was basically residing on CD-ROMs within the business. It wasn't actually being shared around. It wasn't even archived and searchable, really. And so you know, it's taken time for the adoption of, say, cloud technologies and sort of scalable uh, data stores like uh, Amazon S3 to become more commonly used. And we've seen actually, you know, those technologies become cheaper and understood and used by the practitioners who process this kind of imagery. There's been a lot of innovation, particularly recently, on the tooling around working with the data. So geospatial data or Earth observation data typically is not delivered, you know, as a small PNG to your desktop, which you can open easily. They come in these uh, slightly, I guess, proprietary formats, but it's basically a format called the GeoTIFF, which is a TIFF with specialized metadata that basically locates the image on the Earth. There's various headaches with that. So, for example, you can't just 
upload a GeoTIFF into your standard image annotation software because a desktop browser can't display a TIFF. You'd have to convert it to a PNG or a JPEG. So suddenly there's these immediate hurdles to using this common sort of stack for working with images. There's other practical aspects like the size of satellite images. Individual images can be tens of gigabytes, right? So this is already at a scale way beyond what typical practitioners in computer vision would be working with. There's data homogeneity challenges as well. So I don't know if you're familiar with this idea of coordinate reference systems, but obviously the way you display data on a map, there's, there's different sort of systems you can use to do that. And not all data or imagery is provided in a common system. It might be in multiple systems. So there's often lots of hoops to jump through just to standardize all your data sets into a common format where you can even begin processing. And even once you have it there, then you still have the challenges of the size of the data. So one of the things you commonly have to do is take a big image and slice it up into many small tiles and then process those individually bring it all back together and assemble it into some sort of unified data structure. And all of that adds an awful lot of complexity. So yeah, lots of practical challenges. You have issues with, uh, I mean, yeah, this will tell you how much I know about how these images are taken, but like, is the image always like directly over? Or do you get like issues with like the angle at which the image was taken relative to the, to the thing itself? So this is the story of my life for sort of the last year and a half, particularly um, maybe not so much on satellites, but if you're capturing imagery on a plane such as we are, these are generally small planes that are buffeted around by the wind. They don't fly in perfectly straight lines. And so every now and again, you get an image that's perfectly looking down at the earth, but more often than not, it will be slightly at some funny angle and you'll need to identify that. Um, and an awful lot of the work that my colleagues and I have been doing over the last year and a half is about taking this noisy sort of raw data and then sort of standardizing it, uh, performing various corrections to it to uh, calibrate the imagery so they look consistent if they're captured on, under different conditions, for example, uh, and then putting all of this into a standard uh, data formats and making that accessible um, to basically internal customers at the moment, but obviously uh, in the future, external customers as well. I can imagine that all of these challenges um, uh, may also be kind of great drivers of innovation in, in kind of technological innovation in various ways. Just to have to deal with these problems, you have to, um, yeah, d- develop new techniques or, or whatever. Is is that the case, or is it really? Uh, and is that innovation, I guess, being shared among all of the practitioners, or is it all kind of kept in house? There's definitely uh, a lot of innovation happening and the the best practice is moving very quickly. Uh, if you had looked at what was sort of published on the on GitHub and in the literature sort of five years ago, every single paper or team or repository would have a slightly different way of doing things, but actually over time they sort of standardized. Uh, and now, for example, you've got like uh, projects like TorchGeo, which is part of the PyTorch ecosystem, which seeks to basically provide a common framework to work with geospatial data and really lower those those barriers to entry. Um, I'd say that the entire uh, sort of uh, availability of you know, computing resources, you know, over the last 10 years, we've seen the adoption of uh, S3 for data storage, EC2 for processing of data, uh, and, you know, the, avail- the, the sort of easier access to sort of comp- large clusters of computers for processing large volumes of data. 
uh, that actually makes it much more practical to work with these these data sets than it would have been, say, a decade ago. And many of those developments were not for geospatial, but clearly the geospatial can benefit benefit right. from them. Yeah, and it sounds like there's at least as much uh, in terms of firstly the problems but also kind of best practices in terms of like the data engineering side as much as there is on the model development side um in order to make this all work yeah uh i mean the model development side i think that that's obviously what we're here to talk about a bit today but that's probably lagging the other areas you know uh uh and it's not quite clear yet what the best practice is there's been a couple of projects um for example, like RAS Division is one that's maintained by an American company that basically tried to provide best practice and tools for processing uh, imagery, particularly you know using deep learning models. Um, but I think with a lot of these new technologies, it maybe takes a bit of time for it to mature or perhaps uh, build up a sort of critical mass of users before you know you really get the benefits uh, in terms of you know the usability and the sort of you know the ability of that tool to reach maturity quicker. So I think it's slightly lagging behind the other areas, but I'm, I'm confident that th th there's a lot of activity happening. And this will be sort of a solved problem pretty soon. Right. Yeah, I can only just imagine, I mean, you know, in, in software engineering, you have this kind of off by one error. And I, I think just I can just imagine with like the satellite data and all of the problems you, you outlined earlier, there's just a dozen different ways where you could have kind of an equivalent of you formatted something in the wrong way, like the order of whatever coordinates, whatever isn't just right, and must be quite mm. quite hard to to unpack all of that sometimes. Yeah, I think I think they're there, but obviously, really experienced people would would know about all the little pitfalls and the gotchas. But right, we we need to lower the the barrier to entry so that people who maybe come from maybe a, a more general or machine learning background can start working with remote sensing data rather than forcing everybody to become an expert in those. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, um, yeah, I'm interested to kind of talk about um, uh, your your stack, like your your process. How do you how do you deal with all of these images uh, uh, that, that that you have to deal with? What what does that look like in your in your case? So, as I mentioned, I was as the the first hire, and I had the sort of the uh, the opportunity then to to build from scratch and actually in my previous role to this one I was working as a data engineer as a at an e-commerce company and so I brought many of the ideas and tools that we'd used at that in that role uh, to apply to the to my to our current data uh, so for example the data that we capture on on the the plane flights actually gets returned as these single very large binary files that then need to be basically accessed and individual frame data captured from them. Uh, so I, I basically uh, did what I did in my previous role, which was to start with AWS Batch, which is a service, you know, obviously designed for batch processing. Um, and it essentially allows you to write Python scripts and run those at scale. And what I found was that, yeah, it works and you can process large volumes of data quite quickly in parallel in that way, but it's not necessarily uh, the most user-friendly once you become, uh, like say, the data, you put your data scientist hat on, you want to start using some of the processes in there. So what I found for, in particular was that many of the sort of, sort of uh, way, the, the uh, sort of, the variables that you use to calibrate your data, they need, they needed some fine tuning. So, 
uh, I needed to do some experiments really to identify what was the best way of processing our imagery. And if you have everything in a single massive batch job that, that runs for an hour and then gives you a result, that's not really ideal for experimentation. So the next uh, thing I did was actually to break out sort of chunks of the processing into Lambda functions. Uh, and so, and the, this sort of evolution moved from having a single batch job that did an awful lot of things to having a batch job, which actually was just coordinating several different Lambda functions, each of which could then be accessed outside of uh, a batch job uh, for experimentation. Uh, that, um, that has a couple of sort of advantages. For example, like you can access just that individual chunk of the processing anytime, you know, it's just a Lambda function, you can use it uh, in any other analytics application. Um, it isolates parts of the processing code. And actually I did find some funny issue. Uh, originally I was using matplotlib, right, to create some visualizations, but I found that if I did, I, if I tried to save a file in matplotlib 5,000 times in a, in a loop, essentially, that you get these funny memory issues, which are very difficult to, to, to resolve. But actually if I just did called 5,000 Lambda functions, each one just did that one time, I didn't have those same issues and it actually reduced the sort of cognitive burden of doing some of the processing. So there was a couple of uh, advantages there. Um, the sort of evolution from from there, you know, once you've basically got the processing happening in Lambda functions, you don't necessarily even need a batch job or a Python process to manage that. You can, uh, for example, use AWS uh, step functions, which are, uh, don't require you to run any server whatsoever, and they can actually, you know, manage the calling of these lambda functions. Uh, or you can set up other kind of situations where uh, events on S3, say, would trigger a lambda function. So you could say drop in a file that needs some sort of calibration into one bucket that would trigger the lambda function, which would know to create the calibrated image in, in a second uh, folder. Have you found any limitations to working in this kind of serverless um, workflow um, that kind of where you don't really have anything doing the orchestration particularly? It's just like things are chained together. So I did, yeah, there's there's some obvious well-known limitations to Lambda functions, like the, the time that they can execute for. So 15 minutes sounds very generous, but for some of the processes that we've got actually, particularly if you're working with, uh, large numbers of images where you need to extract statistics from them. Actually, that that becomes a bottleneck in itself. So there's obviously a time limit there. Uh, I did find some other issues around sort of the practicalities of using lots of Lambda functions to access, say, ac uh, resources on S3. So there are limits like how, how many times you can access a file on S3 uh, concurrently. And I, I discovered those pretty quickly when all of my Lambda functions were calling the same calibration file. Uh, on S3. Uh, and uh, obviously, there's just the management side. So you go from having, say, a single batch job, which is maybe, say, a single Python script, essentially, to having maybe a single process that's uh, calling maybe five different Lambda functions. And if you're not careful, right, and, the, you know, bugs can be quite difficult to track down across that sort of distributed processing space. Um, for example, like subtle bugs to do with like data, data types changing uh, and not being appreciated. And then maybe you have this whole pipeline to sort of try and debug rather than necessarily being able to just jump into a single sort of Python interpreter and, and resolve. 
And how are you getting the the individual tasks up to up to the the the, the lambda functions? Like, are they uh, are you Dockerizing something? Like, how how does that work? Yeah. So I'm a big big fan of Docker, and actually, I was quite lucky to start using Lambda functions just around the time that they supported using uh, right. Docker. Uh, I think prior to that, you basically had to like create zip files and upload them somehow. But yeah. I, I've been using Docker for a while. Um, lots of sort of side projects have used it prior to this to sort of create little web apps and things like that. But uh, particularly if you've got several people working uh, on a piece of code, you know, the, the ability to sort of standardize on Docker somewhat simplifies the situation. In our team, we've got a mix of uh, Mac users, Windows users, and one guy on Linux. So so getting a consistent environment for all those people can be quite challenging, but actually using Docker helps to standardize that. Um, and I was quite I was quite pleased with the approach with the approach that I, I settled on for creating the Lambda functions, but I was using dev containers with um, uh, VS code and you basically develop inside a container and once you're happy with it, uh, I had a, a GitHub action which would then you know build the image and push it to the container registry on AWS and the, the action was set up so that on new releases to that repository that would happen uh, and then the process I had was actually just to go to the AWS console and say hey there's a new image available let's use that but of course that could also uh, be automated or there's other tools out there to manage manage this process for you as well and you basically living in and interacting with python or are the other languages involved as part of this whole process so personally i'm just using python but particularly with some parts of the processing chain there are legacy tools that that need to be used uh, and these might be written in other languages as well but um yeah, luckily I, I don't deal with those too much myself. But um, yeah, so we, we do have lots of stuff, a couple of pieces of software running on virtual machines that then you have to create an interface to those as well. But for the most part, everything is Python. Okay. Um, yeah. So, and you can kind of, I guess, yeah, that's enough to be able to put a wrapper around everything and, and put it into your workflow the way you want yeah. to. And of course, the beauty of Lambda, it, it can support multiple languages. So if for some reason, there was some processing that needed to happen in Java, for example. You, you could just use Java in your pipeline as well in, in that particular langu- la- uh, Lambda function sort of workflow. So it actually gives you a lot of flexibility. Um, another benefit I, I should mention is the ability to isolate your environments. And this is quite relevant to the, the geospatial domain because there can be some quite funny dependencies that come in and you can get lots of weird conflicts. So the ability to just isolate different parts of your processing chain, it's fine. We're not going to, we're not going to break that bit or do something by updating dependencies somewhere else that, that gives you a lot of uh, sort of a bit of a safety net, I think. Mm-hmm. And how does that, I mean, does this encompass the whole, uh, the whole, I guess experimentation process. You, you mentioned you're, you're building a bunch of kind of small MVPs um, of, of various things. Like, how does that how does that work with you know training models and 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 so on a, a, alongside? So for for the modeling work, uh, typically the kind of MVP that we want to do is to demonstrate a sort of a basic service, you know, like an API. Essentially, and so my the current workflow that myself and my, the other researchers has got is 
you can do what you like, right? But eventually you need to package it up and put it behind an API somehow. And so actually, you know, Lambda is the way that we've, we've been doing that, of course. Uh, there's quite a lot of flexibility, you know, like I mentioned earlier, we use Docker, so you can create an environment that's isolated, you know exactly which dependencies you've got. You can, you know, train your model in that environment if you want, although we often use cloud machines for that as well. Uh, and then as long as it gets deployed to a Lambda function and has an API in front of it, then sort of MVP requirements are met. And uh, typically at that point, we'd hand it over to the engineering team who would do the things that they need to do to make it more robust. But uh, in a startup, you got, the lines are quite blurred. So sometimes we'll find ourselves doing a bit more of the engineering work uh, than other times. Yeah. Yeah, from my own, like, much more limited experience, like, the definitely the... For some reason, computer vision tools seem far more prone to weird dependency conflicts and just a whole bunch of stuff around deploying and converting models and so on. Like it, it, it you often hit these like really painful things that you just. Yeah, yeah. my personal pain is compounded because I was one of the early adopters of the Mac M1, and so right. you know th things just didn't work on it to begin with, and then you've got Docker, which runs I think in emulation on it as well. Computer vision, it does bring a lot of funny dependencies in. So, for example, like OpenCV is used by an awful lot of libraries for loading images and performing operations on them. And that is obviously written in C++. And you know, I've had various issues where for some reason it works in Docker on one machine, but not in Docker on another machine. And there's inevitably some extra you know, steps you need to take to, to get things working. Uh, I'm a bit envious of the people that can just use sort of pandas and scikit-learn for everything because that, that looks way more right. <laughs> straightforward. Yeah, it definitely feels like particularly things around OpenCV, um, not to pick on, pick on any particular library in in, uh, in particular, but um, yeah, there could be like huge compound benefits for fixing those underlying like um, nagging issues, um, I feel. Yeah. And I think, again, that's one of the areas where Docker can help. So, for example, like somebody can create an image. It's got everything you need in it, and you just need to add what, what additional parts you need to it. And, you know, we can get an engineer to refine that, say, and then the data scientists yep. can, can come along and use it. Um, and speaking of just tooling, like how, um, what special tools do you use, special favorite libraries? What, what kinds of things are you using um, as, as you do your day-to-day -day work? I think mean, most of it is probably familiar data science stacks. So I, I, I use VS Code. I use Jupyter Notebooks inside that for lots of my sort of uh, R&D uh, activities. As I mentioned, we use Python and Docker as well. Uh, you know, most, most of the time my imports would be something along the line of import NumPy, import uh, Pillow. Um, you know, uh, we also use a mixture of PyTorch and uh, TensorFlow as, as required. Um, so uh, for the most part, it's familiar stuff. I mean, I, I think like computer vision is becoming much more mainstream uh, these days. So I definitely feel like the, the tooling and the libraries around it are, are much more user-friendly and uh, fully featured than they were even just a couple of years ago. And are you mainly, it sounds like you are, but are you mainly kind of hanging out in with, with open source tools or is there anything kind of custom or proprietary oh, yeah. you need specially? For the work that I do, it's all open source. Uh, we do use some sort of proprietary tools for uh, some aspects of the, the data processing, but actually not 
particularly touching the, the, the images that I work with. Uh, so, for example, like where we create these large mosaics of images, that's uh, done with um, uh, proprietary tools. But for the data science work, it's all it's all open source. Uh, we're big believers that uh, open source software you know, has the most users, has the most eyes on it, actually results in, in the highest quality. And I really can't see a situation where we would use anything other than that for the data science work. So you've got you've got you've got these 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 open source tooling tooling that you're you're using like it, it's definitely um, you know there's a ton of almost every day you uh, hear new things which are being done in terms of the research work on um, in 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 computer vision in general um, how much obviously you're a startup so maybe you don't necessarily go down every rabbit hole but like how much of that do you follow and you feel you need to keep up with for, for your day to day work or is that not really so important. Uh, I find it a very interesting and fascinating topic. I try, you know, and try and put in, say, half an hour a day just to, to check. Uh, there's a couple of journals that I check just to, just see what's there, and stuff just pops up in your in your feeds as well. I, f- I find that an awful lot of stuff just is presented to me on, say, Twitter or GitHub uh, that we we immediately find useful. We have a couple of areas that we're particularly focused on right now, which are, you know our highest priority. And so we, we keep a closer eye on, on those areas. But uh, yeah, there, there's an awful lot of material happening, not just in remote, remote sensing computer vision world, but also the wider computer vision world. So there's a lot of work, for example, happening uh, in teams that are working on autonomous cars that is very relevant to you know what we're doing as well. So we, we, we have quite a, a broad focus in terms of keeping an eye on what's coming, but it's a lot, it's a challenge. And I guess I mean the the whole um, transformers m- multimodal models story. Like, is that is that kind of infringing onto your attention as well? Increasingly, I hope that we'll get to that point soon. We're still basically doing quite, I'd say, more bread and butter uh, sort of computer vision work. Basically, we're still solving a lot of the sort of foundational challenges around image quality, and you know, so but. Yeah, that more exotic stuff and where a lot of the innovation is happening, that's obviously where we hope to get to uh, once all this work is done. Nice. Um, so you you uh, maintain a, a super popular GitHub repo, um, the satellite image deep learning uh, repository. I'm kind of interested just if you could tell, tell a little bit about the backstory behind that. Um, yeah, um, how, how how you came to, to start working on that. Sure. So this was... Uh, I started this uh, in a role, two or three roles ago, when I was actually working as a scientist. Uh, basically, I was uh, working on the optical design and then characterization of telescopes to go on satellites, a company called Surrey Satellites. And I had uh, a couple of days just to, to do some blue skies research. And I said, I'm going to investigate uh, artificial intelligence and what, what we can do with that to... Uh, help catalog the imagery that we've already captured. So I spent a couple of days just working on a basic classification uh, task using uh, TensorFlow 1 at the time. Uh, and what I discovered was there was just very little material available to help you uh, start working with remote sensing data using deep learning tools. I mean, I think I when I started this repository, there was probably about four or five references uh, on it, and uh, it, there really was just not much to be found. So I, I kind of started this as a, a cheat sheet to myself, and didn't really think it would ever get much, much, you know, interest outside of a very small niche. But I think what we've seen is that 
a lot more people outside of the classic remote sensing community are interested in in the data uh, and you know um, that is reflected in in the popularity of this repository I think it was at like 20 stars for the first couple of years and then probably went up to a couple of hundred but I didn't really notice it until maybe I started my current role which is only a year and a half ago and uh, then it's really taken off since then it's over a three thousand or something now I think that's right yeah yeah Amazing. Um, yeah, and it, it's definitely um, definitely approachable. I would say to to non non experts in the field. Like that's that's what I've I've enjoyed. Like it's um, yeah, depending on whatever specific use case or whatever. There's um, it seems like there's increasingly like an example for everything, and um, yeah, find it really useful for that. That's right. Yeah, I think when when this is when this repository started, like the examples were like two hundred lines of code. And now it's like import PyTorch and five lines later, you've got, you know, a prediction. So definitely it's got a lot more user-friendly. And uh, I, I hope I like to think there might be a feedback loop where, you know, the more material that is available will help right. people get to those uh, efficiencies that much quicker. Mm -hmm. And how how is the space in terms of uh, access to open data sets uh, at the moment, like in, in the remote, remote images? Um, yeah, domain is has that changed a lot? Like, have there, yeah, are are there free free data sets available for people to 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 just get going with? Yeah, I think definitely. I think I mentioned earlier on that like ten years ago, lots of this data would have been very hard to access. I mean, I've even heard about people like you know sending requests and getting DVDs through the, the through the mail. Right? But now you've got uh, like Google Earth Engine, which is an incredibly popular platform maintained by Google, where you can literally. Uh, log in and just access like I think like hundreds of different kinds of data sets and immediately begin like you know visualizing and, and computing on those. I think maybe one of the challenges right now is that these data sets are spread data sets are spread on lots of different platforms and maybe just not well known. This is one of the other things I've tried to do with my repository is actually just create a place where you can actually just search for things. You know, I want to say find a car cars data set like you know you wouldn't necessarily say, okay, I'll go to Google Earth Engine. It will, it will definitely be there. It might not. It might be in some academics uh, right. Dropbox somewhere. Uh, and, you know, only five people in the whole world know about it. So I, I think the data is out there, but the discoverability is a challenge. I think the other side of it is you don't just want raw data. You want annotated data. And, you know, we've, we've seen particularly maybe geospatial world that the, the annotations can come in many many shapes and forms um so hopefully over time we'll see both the creation of the right kinds of tools to you know standardize those annotations uh and maybe a convergence on you know particular kinds of uh, annotation formats that will greatly simplify the use of these uh, data sets yeah i was going to ask if there were like meta search engines or like interfaces where you could say i mean i assume many of the kind of big uh big name intelligence agencies have kind these kinds of things where you know you have a, spe a specific coordinate and you want to be able to scroll through all of the images available on different platforms for a particular mm. day let's say or um i guess you're saying that we're not there yet we're getting close to that, actually. So that in the last two or three years, there's been a lot of work standardizing the way that these data sets are presented to, to search engines. And there's this sort of format called the stack catalog, which basically says we're going to 
indexed geospatial data in a standardized way to make these searches much easier. And then, you know, we can provide a single search location to query all of these basically on, you know, dimensions of time or, or space. Uh, and it, like any new format, it takes a while for it to sort of settle down and to become sort of accepted and all the data sets to be prepared and put into it. So I, th I think we're, we're close, but it's, it's it's not quite there yet. Um, and I, yeah, there's a couple of like general purpose like resources out there. Like I found that Papers with Code, for example, has uh, links to lots of data sets. And then there's lots of uh, somebody. Uh, so for example, somebody uh, image annotation platforms also host data sets. So I've uh, used RoboFlow a little bit. And for example, that has a, a data set catalog on it where you, where you can query. So I think we're there, but yeah, there's a bit more work on the standardization and just the discoverability to do yet. Interesting. Um, I'm curious if there if there are some some kind of things which you you do in your day to day, particularly in the context of a team, maybe uh, around this particular domain of data, which um, yeah, where where you've kind of learned some best practices. I'm thinking, um, you know, particularly kind of anomaly detection and error detection around like build it when you're building your models like for computer vision this is often like can be quite a visual thing and like you'd like to like refer back to I don't know, the overlays of things that you're detecting on top of images and so on um are, are there things that you do like regularly around that where which you found super really valuable yeah i mean it might sound a bit mundane, but we, we use Slack to share interesting insights. Uh, so, for example, um, I'm on the R&D side, but we have people that are more on the an an analytics and analysis side who actually spend a lot more of the time actually looking at the imagery. And they often spot unusual uh, things that, you know, I, I just wouldn't notice just because I don't spend that much time looking at the imagery. And just having that channel of communication where you can share uh, insights, I think, is, is really useful. Um people finding unusual things in the image that we need to know about before we create models uh, is really important. You, uh, you brought up kind of annotation there. Like, is annotation like part of your workflow? Do you outsource it? Like, is that, um, yeah, how do you handle that? Yeah, so uh, essentially if there's annotation that needs to be done, then whoever's right. working on the research project uh, has to do it, which I think has benefits, right? Because you actually spend more time getting hands-on with the data, and you also have to be smart about working with the data. So we've done some R&D activities uh, using a tool called Lightly to try and understand the distribution of sort of uh, our, our data set and understand you know, which parts of a data set even need to be annotated or have the most unique characteristics and therefore should be you know, prioritized for annotation. Um, and yeah. Um, it takes a certain scale to get to the point where you can actually outsource annotation. So if you go and speak to an annotation company, they'll say, well, how many millions of images have you got? <laughs> and if you come back with a number that's not millions of images, they say, mm, okay, sorry. So, you know, it's, it's kind of like driven on both ends that I think it's, it's worth doing to some extent, but also you, know, you, need, you need to be at scale before you can outsource a lot of this stuff anyway. And are you using just standard open source annotation tools or are there special things for satellite data that, that you need to use? It's a bit of a mixture at the moment. Uh, there's no ideal tool. There's obviously lots of annotation tools out there. If you narrow that down to the ones that support geospatial data, that list becomes very short. And if you narrow that down to the ones that work with our kind of single channel thermal imagery, the list is vanishingly 
small. So basically, it depends on the task at hand, either pre-process your imagery into the format that can be you know, used on a standard tool. So we, we lose all the metadata around where the images are. We just have PNGs that are contrast stretched and resized and you know, just put that through Label Studio. Or, and actually I was doing this this morning, you create your own tools where you, know, you can actually work with the geotiffs as is and annotate on those. Uh, so the perfect tool does not yet exist. Um, and I think there's always that build or buy trade-off that you know you have to decide based on how niche your your application is and i think it's going to take a bit of time to, to figure out where exactly we, we sit on that build versus buy yeah it definitely seems like at, at certain scales and certain applications people just end up building their kind of own annotation custom annotation platform and the yeah i mean like you said there's there's a million and one annotation tools available um particularly in the kind of closed source realm but no doesn't seem like there's a kind of a clear standout um uh, very flexible and extensible tool which allows you to to do anything um yeah. i think i think the way i'd like to see it go is that we wouldn't build a tool you know just for our own purpose we would ultimately contribute to an an open source tool and i think yes. for example is it diffgram i saw they support like annotating uh, synthetic aperture radio imagery and that obviously is being provided by a company that generates that kind of imagery and you know I, I can see that maybe we would do the same thing for thermal imagery in the long run um so we usually end with with a kind of a couple couple small questions uh, interested to to hear your take given given your background um First one, uh, what would be kind of a quick win that in your experience you think would be useful for someone to make their productionizing of models more robust? So my answer to that is validate the data that you're, you're inputting to the, to the model. So I've seen this myself where I've created a model, I'm very proud of it, and I put an API in front of it and I show it to a colleague and immediately there's issues because actually the, the formatting of the data is ever so slightly different from what I was expecting. And so a bit of bit of time up front just to validate the data, the quality of the data and the, the format of the data can save a lot of a lot of pains later on. The speed at which you answered that suggests that you've been burnt by that, yeah, for sure. Oh, oh yeah. <laughs> um, and what would be kind of one part of putting models into production that you think is is neglected by um, toolmakers in in the space um, in whatever area, I guess. So. I've got two answers to this. The first one is around like the optimization of the actual inferencing experience. So particularly for vision models, there's several different strategies. You know, you can compile it to some other format and actually get like a 10x improvement in the rate of inferencing. But that, that's quite specialist work. And as a let's say as a data scientist working in the model, that maybe doesn't fall in your camp. And as you know, somebody on the ML engineering side is maybe a bit too specialized, it doesn't fall in their camp. It's sort of in the cracks a little bit. So it'd be quite nice to see that. Uh, supported. And I would also just, there's a second part to that, just to say, can we please see more support for, for vision data? Because pretty much nearly all the tools out there basically focus on, you know, text data or data. tabular data. And yeah. vision is like a footnote somewhere. So please can we have some more for the vision people? Nice. Well, yeah, thank you very much for, for coming on. Um, definitely been really interesting to hear, uh, hear this kind of use case and your experience working on it. Thank you, Alex. It's been a pleasure to be on. Thank you for listening to this latest episode of Pipeline Conversations. 
If you enjoyed what you heard, please consider giving us a review wherever you get your podcasts. It helps us get seen by more people. And of course, it's always nice to receive feedback. If you have suggestions for future guests, please send them over to podcast at zenml.io. Thanks. Until next time.